Welcome to a brand new episode. Mike Driscoll, The Python Show. Hello and welcome to The Python Show. This is your host, Mike Driscoll. Today we have a very special guest, Matt Harrison. Matt is a um, teacher, trainer, and uh, author. He's written several books on Python and other languages. Uh, anyway, welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Yeah, it's super fun to have you. And, you know, I, I really like talking to fellow authors and content creators, but I just thought, I thought you'd be a really good guest to have on. So, well, I appreciate the invite. Happy, happy to join. Yeah. So well, most people that I invite on my show, I have them tell us a little bit about their background and, you know, what do you do? How did you get into programming? That sort of thing. So, yeah. So I like to say that I sell snake oil and teach people to tell lies with data, <laughs> but I, I spend a good deal of my time helping teams level up their Python and data skills. So I, I do corporate training. Okay. Um, and um, yeah, in addition, I, I guess content creator, so uh, write books, uh, make videos, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my journey to programming is that you want to know how I got into programming? Yeah, let's talk about that. Okay. Yeah. So I, I guess there, there's a couple different, uh, I, I guess time periods. I, you know, initially my, my first experience with programming was back in the early eighties, my dad brought home a Commodore 64. And so my brother mm-hmm. and I would, uh, take computer magazines. I, I think it was byte and we would like transcribe the, the code in that and, and, and write programs in that. So, mm-hmm. uh, I guess some assembly or binary injury there, and then some, some basic code, uh, very mm-hmm. early on. Later on, uh, in high school, I took a, a programming class that was, um, Pascal, I guess. And then mm-hmm. I, I, w- I wasn't thinking that I would do programming later, like as a career, but, um, eventually that, uh, uh after a few shifts in, in college decided to do that. Um, cool. yeah, so that's, that's kind of kind of, I guess, the, the short story of, of journey to programming. Well, wow, you really went in at the, the hard end of the scale, starting with, ba- well, basics isn't too bad, but Pascal, I'm surprised they did that in high school. Yeah, uh, we, it, it was Pascal. They, then I took the AP computer science class. And it's weird because that was like one of the classes where I, I left feeling like I I feel really good about this and I got one of my lowest mm-hmm. scores on it after doing that. So I'm like, um, I, that was, that was really odd, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't done much Pascal after that, which I'm, I can't complain about. Yeah. Yeah. I think the closest I got to Pascal was, um, I guess I did have some assembler. I don't think that's really close to Pascal though. Maybe COBOL. I did a little bit of COBOL in, co- in college. Oh, fun. For some definition of fun, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do. I, I have a good friend who's he made quite the career for herself in COBOL. So yeah, it's yeah. not a, it's not completely dead. Yeah, it's not dead, and people who are willing to do that, I, I understand, get compensated well. So, mm-hmm. 
So those those people that uh, still need to support the bank and finance and I think insurance agencies, those, I think those two guys still use COBOL and um, there's another language I'm forgetting, Fortran, I believe. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of COBOLs kicking around. Yeah. So how did you get into uh, doing uh, Python and training around Python? Yeah, so uh, when I was in college, someone, like in college we did uh, C, Lisp, and Java were sort of the the languages of choice there. Mm -hmm. And I was told by someone that I respected that if I learned Perl, I would easily be able to get a job. And I was looking for a summer internship. And so I went out and bought a little book on Perl. And mm -hmm. it looked pretty simple, I mean, relatively easy. And I had a Linux computer and tried it out and like, oh, this is kind of cool. And so uh, I, I did get a job that summer and I used Perl for it. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like compared to C or Java or even Lisp, um, it, it was just kind of like, oh, this is like, there's not a ton of ceremony. You can just sort of mm -hmm. do things relatively easily. You don't have to worry about compiling things. And, mm -hmm. and so I used Perl for about a year. And then um, after school, I, I got another job and I was tasked to work with a colleague. And this colleague was using a language called Tickle. And TCL, and neither of us was like stoked about crossing the bridge to the other language. Like he's like, I don't want to do Perl, and I was like, Yeah, Tickle doesn't really sound interesting to me. And so it turned out that there was a third option, which was Python, and that was like, he was like, I, I've heard of this language called Python. And I'm like, Yeah, Python sounds kind of cool. And so uh, that was our compromise, and. Uh, we used Python for a, a tool that we were making and we were relatively quick on, on doing that. It took, I believe like three days to make the tool using this new language. And I think neither one of us looked back. It was kind of an epiphany where, mm -hmm. uh, there were a lot of things that I liked about Python versus Perl. And, uh, this was back in the year 2000. And, and so I've been using Python since then. And that's kind of been my language of choice. That's cool. Yeah. Whenever someone mentions Tickle, it makes me think of Tkinter, which is based on Tickle. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Tkinter library, yeah, that's in in Python. It, yeah, came from came from Tickle. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and then uh, as, as far as like how I started doing training. Um, just, I would say, generally getting involved and putting myself out there. I remember uh, about the time I got my first job, I had a friend who was like speaking at all of these conferences and doing these things. And I was like, why is he doing that and not me? And mm. that that was sort of my thought and my, um, I guess, realization was that, you know, no one was going to like... You know, if I just like have these desires to like speak or whatnot, unless I manifest them somehow, it's not just going to be like someone's going to come ask me generally to do that. I would have to mm -hmm. put myself out there. And so I started um, getting involved at the time I was living in the Bay Area. So getting involved with a Python group out there, 
uh, started speaking, speaking at conferences and, and doing some teaching. And uh, while I was in school and in, in high school and college, I did a lot of tutoring. So I did uh, mostly math mm-hmm. tutoring, but I did some programming tutoring as well. Mm-hmm. which helped pay for my college. And uh, I come from a family of educators. My mom uh, is an educator. And and so I I, I think I, I valued education, but it was also super, it was super cool to like be teaching someone who's like, oh, I'm bad at math. I can't do math. Or like mm-hmm. I didn't do good on my math ACT. And then to work with them for a little bit and get them to a point where, oh yeah, they're, you know, doing very well on their math instead of flunking it, they're getting A's or mm-hmm. close to A's and, and seeing that growth and progress was really satisfying. And so I started teaching, uh, I would say a bunch of tutorials at conferences rather than just talks. And then that mm-hmm. eventually led into people approaching me and, you know, asking for help learning or, or with training and that sort of led into, to the training that I do today. So it's, it's, um, I would say, you know, people ask me like, if I want to do that, how do I do that? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really have an answer for like cracking the training nut, like the training nut Mm -hmm. is kind of, you know, to do it, um, you know, certainly there are companies who like hire trainers. Um, that's probably an easier step for folks who are interested in getting into that sort of going mm-hmm. off on your own is kind of a challenge in that you have to have demand, but how do you have demand if you haven't done it before? So I think yeah. I, I was relatively lucky there. And I also had the chance to work with some other smart people who were doing training kind of, I guess, learn from the best and the brightest as, as well in my time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it is, I think, you know, for folks who, who like education, um, it's, I think, super rewarding and it gives me a chance to uh, see really cool applications of Python and data science, but also, like I said, see, you know, even instead of, you know, working with college age or high school age folks, working with older folks and, and watching them progress and, and sort of see those same experiences of learning and and progression is i think it's still rewarding and super satisfying yeah i really enjoy you know getting comments back from from people even if they just read a simple article of mine they're like oh you really made this easy to easy to understand it it is definitely you know a satisfying thing to have those positive comments come in yeah yeah certainly certainly fun to have have the positive comments in um, sometimes useful to have the less positive comments come in as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. As long as they're not trying to tear you down in the process, I, I'll take those as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, have you noticed any like common themes, like top three common things that people or students would like struggle with? Uh, there are, yeah, with Python, there are, there are a few things that folks study or struggle with. I think, you know, a lot of the folks I work with these days don't have what I would call like classical computer science training, or they don't have a mm-hmm. CS degree. So they might have a degree in electrical engineering or maybe some other science. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, but 
for all intents and purposes are sitting in front of a computer, often using like Jupyter and kind of writing code or, or working with data and code all day. Mm -hmm. And these folks claim, quote, I, I'm not a programmer. I don't, I didn't want to be a programmer, but essentially they are programming. Yeah. And so um, I, I kind of take it as my, you know, covert learning goal to teach programming best practices to these folks who, you know, claim they, they don't want to be programmers. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and even today with Python being, you know, the most popular language being taught at university or most popular language of data scientists or when, you know, one of the top two yeah. or three languages around, I think there's, there's generally... I would say knowledge gaps with, with folks. I mean, Python has some good things going for it. Like, you know, because it's so popular, there's a lot of content around it. We have things mm -hmm. like that that can write Python. And so, and it's relatively readable. So people with some program experience can, can relatively easily take Python code and, and kind of get it working, which it, yeah. which is good. And, and that like that out of the box sort of quick experience is, is easy. But I think that also makes it so folks are like, oh, this is so easy. I don't, I don't need to like really double down and learn it. And so I, I think mm -hmm. from, from the, there's that angle. And I think there's also the angle of, and this might seem harsh, like, but I think there's a lot of what I would call academic Python, uh, which is what I, I'm, I'm just going to generalize here. And, and there are some teachers who aren't okay. doing this, but I think a lot of them are like, oh, I've been teaching whatever Pascal or C++ or Java for 30 years. And the dean mm -hmm. comes in and says, we need to teach Python because everyone wants to learn Python. They're like, I don't want you to learn Python or teach it. And they're like, you will teach Python. So I think they, they take their slides that, you know, they've been using for the past 30 years and, and uh, mm -hmm. translate them to Python. And, and so I think a, and I, I've seen like my daughter's taking a CS, she's a CS student right now. And, and I've seen a little bit of this where, where you have folks that are, you know, learning Python, but they're not really learning Python. They're learning like mm -hmm. general programming that has a, a Python language somewhat. Um, yeah. there's, there's nothing really Python for a lot of it, it's not really Python specific. It's just like, this is, you know, a for loop, this is a function thing. And uh, we're using this thing called Python to allow us to do that. So I think there's a, a bunch of huge knowledge gaps in, in a lot of folks um, with, with uh, hmm. Python, where uh, because the language is easy and popular, uh, it, it's used a lot and, and people kind of get access to it and things kind of work. But there's a, there's a lot of knowledge gaps there. So, so to be more concrete, you know, some, mm -hmm. some of the common things that I think people don't understand, um, one is just like the, the object model of Python, this idea in Python that everything is an object is, mm -hmm. is not understood well. And that causes issues with things like defaulting to mutable types on arguments where, you know, if someone defaults mm -hmm. the list, they don't really understand why that happens when the next time they call it, the list is now no longer empty, but it has something in it because mm -hmm. they don't, they don't understand the Python object model going back to that. So I, I spend a good deal like with my fundamentals class kind of explaining that. And I think, you know, when you have that, that concept or understanding certainly helps, uh, 
you know, a, a lot of a lot of the stuff I do is like I said, data related. And so understanding like why mm-hmm. Python is slow for data and why tools like pandas or now polars or other things can make Python fast, uh, even mm-hmm. though it is a slow language. So that's probably the biggest one, but, uh, you know, a general, a general thing that I think people, you know, struggle with is object oriented programming. And I'm not, yeah. I'm not a, like object oriented programming is a silver bullet type. That's not my, my, uh, you know, I, like if I look mm-hmm. at like a lot of my data books, um, you could go through those without ever writing a class and, and like, you know, a lot of the, the tools that I use, like pandas, it's mm-hmm. only possible to write a lot of pandas code without ever writing classes. So I'm not saying that like people should throw classes everywhere, but I think generally yeah. that is one of the concepts that, um, and, and I don't know if it's just because people say it's difficult. Um, and so people think that like, oh, this is difficult, so I'm not going to be able to understand it. Um it seems to be that there's a lot of, of confusion around that. And, and from my point of view, mm-hmm. you know, teaching object oriented programming is, you know, you have actions and you have information and, and your brain generally isn't great at storing a bunch of information. And, and so we combine mm-hmm. those in, into this idea of an object that can hold the information and then do actions on the information so that we don't have to remember a lot of things we can just remember the object which acts as an abstraction for those other mm-hmm. pieces of information and objects so those are some common things that you know folks folks deal with it from the python side from the data yeah. side um I, I you know a lot of like folks i i, I do like machine learning teaching so a lot of folks you know, are, don't have any background in understanding that. Um, and I I don't know that they necessarily struggle with it. I don't like using Python for machine learning is not particularly hard. It's like three lines of code to do that. Um, I would say the struggle, which isn't Mm -hmm. necessarily Python related is getting the data ready, right? Prepping the data and, Mm -hmm. uh, dealing with messy data and cleaning it up. And, and I think that's a general concern and problem. And in most places, most places don't work in a place where the data is pristine and pure. They have Mm -hmm. data quality issues and missing data and outliers and, and, and problems with the data. And, and so getting, you know, three lines of code to make a model, not hard, getting the data such that you can run it in the model. Yeah. That's a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Yeah, I've always found even even for for jobs where you'd think the data would be complete, like I once worked for a payment processor, you'd think the payment processing information coming from the client would have all the pieces of data that you need to process a payment. We had, we had so many pro- so many problems onboarding new clients cuz we had to reject all their data cuz they'd be, they'd be missing key fields. And I'm like, yeah. you know, this is obvious stuff. You can't pay someone if you don't provide the bank account routing number or, you know, just, just silly things like that. And uh-huh. <laughs> it just, you know, cleaning new data isn't something that a lot of people think about. So it's, it's good you brought that up. 
Yeah, I think I think uh, you know there there is certainly a, a technological side to this, but a lot of a lot of the data things are also communication problems as mm-hmm. well. It's like yeah, if you would have told them they needed the bank routing number, then they would have provided it right. Or if if someone mm-hmm. who made the form uh, made that required, that that would have been um, uh, probably less of a problem. I you know folks often ask me like, what's the most important skill for like a data science? to have and i and i think this is probably the same for for programming as well and i think it's communication right the the ability Mm -hmm. to communicate well with people who are asking what you you know when people are are saying like we need you to write a program that does this asking questions and communicating results back to them or if you're dealing with data Mm -hmm. communicating with the stakeholders asking you know what is the outcome that you want? Why, why are we doing this? Uh, talking with subject matter experts to, who can explain like why this data is missing or what these values mean in the data. Mm-hmm. And, and those are some of these soft skills that aren't, you know, that doesn't matter what language or tools you're using, the ability to communicate and, and work and uh, I guess integrate with others is super important. Yeah. It's hard to teach people how, how do you analyze this data unless unless they provide you with like an output too? Because that's you know, that's something I sometimes have to deal with. They'll give you we we give you this input and we want this output, but sometimes the output isn't defined. Mm-hmm. So then you have to go. That's that's kind of a clue to especially to junior developers. Hey, the output's not defined. I need to go ask a bunch of questions. Yeah, and oftentimes you know you have there there's that notion of you know. Um, premature optimization or, or like, oh, mm-hmm. well, we don't need this right now, but I, I imagine we might need this in the future, right? And so a lot of people, I think, go off of on tangents and, and do a lot of work for things that hypothetically they think someone might need in the future. Whereas, um, you know, before doing those sorts of activities, certainly it'd probably get to have a discussion and ask what will happen in the future and, and probably limit the scope or the focus to things that are relevant mm-hmm. now rather than things that might be relevant in the future. Yeah, I think I think teaching junior developers to uh, keep scope small so that we can ship a product is one of the most important things to learn because otherwise scope creep will keep delaying the yeah. product's release. Yeah, being being able to to have something ship even if it's imperfect is often much more important than than yeah having every everything perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's really hard. Sometimes it's even hard to get uh, management on board with that. They're like, it needs to have X, Y, and Z. And sometimes you're like, well, if it has X, it's usable. We can get Y and Z, you know, in six months. Yeah. Yeah. So. Anyway, before I go too far down design, the design side, let's uh, let's try to stay on topic. <laughs> um, do you see any impact with all this AI stuff uh, having any, you know like a negative or a positive impact on your training or your writing? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, so, I. I've, I've got a few views on that. I think one is, you know, as a student, when I was, you know, learning math, generally we learned, you know, how to do addition and subtraction and multiplication and long division. 
And then at some point they said, okay, now you've learned that you can use a calculator, right? Yeah. And, you know, it was the, the ability to, you know, long form, do the math important. I think, I think it was because I think I wouldn't have appreciated or understood what the calculator does as mm -hmm. much had I not done that. And so I, I view uh, a lot of these AI tools similarly to a calculator. Um, so, so one like AI tool that I use a lot is Grammarly as someone who writes mm -hmm. a lot of content. And it, for me, this is a calculator, right? It, it, it sort of makes sure that I did my math and my subtraction correct. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I could, you know, do other things to edit my, my text or have editors or, or, you know, sleep on my text and come back to it and look at it or, or do other things to do that. But mm -hmm. you know, like having, having a, a grammar checker just to do that immediately is a huge win for me and makes me more productive and also prevents me from putting my foot in my mouth, uh, too often. Um, mm -hmm. having said that, like, it, I, like, I wish I could figure out how to put a, uh, Grammarly on my phone because I often like tweet or type things on my phone that, um, should be grammar checked more than they are. So mm -hmm. yeah, I, th I think like certainly like tools like that, you know, it's, but I need to know the rules of grammar to understand how to apply the grammar checker. And so yeah. I, I think we can take that same idea uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people when they're asking about AI are, are kind of hinting at like, well, I, specifically, can I use like chat GPT to like write my programs for me and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, one thing that uh, I do a lot in my fundamentals classes is we build up a semi, well, actually we, we basically build like a very dumb version of chat GPT, um, using like hidden Markov chains to, uh, make a, a, a language model that, that has like a interface like chat GPT, you can type things into it and it will get spit out a completion based on that. And, and, and it's a nice little project in that like that, you know, teaches a lot of, you know, it shows how to use like functions and classes and dictionaries and lists and sort of like the fundamentals of Python. You can talk about a bunch of you know, the core features of Python doing that. Having said that, like it is certainly possible to use chat GPT or, or some other AI tool to create that program uh, for you. If mm -hmm. you know what you're asking for. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, I view it like as someone who is creating code or content, I have, you know, you can say like, I have my cup and my cup has so much energy in it. Right. That's, mm -hmm. that's the amount of focus or, 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 you know, deep work that I can do in a given day. And, you know, a lot of the work that I, I do is I would say, if, if you look at that quadrant of like important or urgent, it's, it's like important, um, but not urgent or, it's not important, but urgent. Uh, and, and so a lot of these things that are, are more like tasks that don't require me to do something really hard, but are something that, you know, could take five or 10 minutes. I can leverage AI to do those for me. Right. So, so what mm -hmm. might be an example? Um, well, it could be 
writing a little script to tweak something in, in one of my books. Um, in the past, I would have to, you know, take uh, 10, 15, 30 minutes, an hour to like write a script. Now it takes me a minute to, to describe what I want to happen. And if I'm good about that in another 20 seconds, I have output that actually does what would have taken me in the past 10 minutes, 30 minutes or mm -hmm. an hour to do. And I think that's a huge, uh, leverage of AI in, in that, because I, I know what I want and I, I have that experience, I can mm -hmm. now offload that. It's like having a, basically a junior programmer or an assistant to do something for you. Uh, what it, where I haven't f found a lot of help with AI is more of uh, some of these harder tasks that, um, um, you know, uh, creating, debugging, um, integrating, Mm -hmm. um, that, that require a larger context, uh, maybe that's outside of the scope of, of like the context that you can apply to like chat or copilot or something like that, or the small menial tasks that does a great job at for the more, uh, focus requiring tasks, maybe not so much, but I, I, I believe that because I can offload a lot of my menial tasks, that is often what I spend a good chunk of time doing gives me more mm -hmm. time to focus on, on these harder tasks. So, hmm. um, I, I think, you know, a, a, as an individual, does AI help me? Yes, certainly helps me. I use AI all the time, but, but mm -hmm. I think someone who's leveraging AI needs to uh, approach it as uh, a, a good analogy might be, you know, I I've written multiple books and oftentimes having an editor helps the book be better, right? The editor can like give you feedback mm -hmm. on the book and understand, you know, what makes a book good or bad and that sort of thing. Um, and so I would say that, you know, the skills of an editor generally are, are probably um, uh, not necessarily complementary, but maybe sit at a higher level than the, the, the skills of the writer. They're, they're a different skill set, but they're maybe like a meta skill set. Um, mm -hmm. and for, you know, for, for a technical editor to be successful, they do need to have some technical understanding, right? I mean, you can be a copy editor and say like mm -hmm. oh, grammar here, but for, for a technical editor, they do need to have some, some technical expertise. And so I think someone who's leveraging AI, um, can leverage it as, as this higher level meta task assistant. But if they don't have that underlying skills of like being able to write the book, so to speak, then mm -hmm. uh, being able to be an editor doesn't much, much matter if they don't have the skills to write the book due to like failures in AI where it will hallucinate or do things that are, are just sort of silly. Yeah. So, it, so I think a lot of folks have a misunderstanding where they're like, oh, well, now that AI can write code, we just won't hire folks to do that. Well, I, I think that's that's a misunderstanding because you, you need to have someone who can tell the AI how to write the code. And if someone is not an expert and doesn't understand how to do that, um, certainly the AI is going to try and placate the user and say, oh, here's some code. But it's not necessarily the case that the code will do what, what the user might have intended it to do. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's a long, long way of saying that like, 
you know, does AI disrupt training? Um, I think, I think people think it will, but from my point of view, I think where AI really shines is when you have domain expertise, it allows you to outsource menial tasks and get assistance on, on what you need. If you don't have that domain expertise, I think it's going to be really hard to leverage AI and be productive with it because it's probably going to lead you down some paths that you won't, because you don't have that expertise, you don't know where you're being mm -hmm. led. You're just blindly following it. Yeah, that makes sense. Are you seeing like students getting misled by AI at all yet, or is it too soon? Well, I, th I think, you know, I guess hypothetically you could th say like, you know, would someone need Matt to do training when they have like an AI, the AI could just train them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and my, I guess my, I think my value add as a trainer is like, I'm going to take you from point A to point B along the way. I'm going to show you uh, pitfalls and other things that you might not be mm -hmm. aware of. And you might know that you want to go to point B and you might ask, you know, the AI to take you to point B and that might take you on a path there. But, um, it, it might just talk about point B without gradually taking you there. Right. Or it might yeah. not teach you some of the, the, the pitfalls or things to be aware of. So mm -hmm. I, I, you know, obviously as a trainer, I I'm, I'm biased in this, but I think you, you really do want someone with expertise kind of helping you and guiding you in, in your usage of these things rather than, uh, just, you know, yeah. going out, like, could I use chat GPT to ask me how to do heart surgery? It would probably tell me how to do heart surgery and, and the best ways for me to be a heart surgeon. Right. But, um, it would probably be a lot better if I had like someone who has experience doing heart surgery, helping me along the way. Uh, mm -hmm. the chat might be like useful for like helping me know of little facts or things or like, you know, what the dosage of some drug that I didn't remember, but, um, you yeah. know, taking you on, on, on that path. I, I don't know that, um, chat or we'll just say AI is great for that. I mean, I guess yeah. at another level, you know, reflecting on that, you know, we do have these AI products that, you know, and they can sort of customize things to, to users, but, you know, we, we've had, I would say like an information overload, um, you know, almost since the internet where there, you know, a lot of people are like, how do I learn Python? And I'm like, here, here's my recommended best practices for learning Python. And I can walk people through like what I think is the best way to learn it. And then mm -hmm. I'll get some people are like, well, I want to be free. I want it to be really cheap. In fact, I want it to be free. It's like there, there's a, there's a lot of free content out there. In fact, there, there's probably too much free content out there. So the problem yeah. I think is for someone who doesn't know how they want to learn is like, how do I leverage this free content and how do I know which free content is good versus not good? Right. I mean, you have, you know, a lot of MIT or Harvard or Stanford's material freely available. And, um, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I think the mentality of a lot of people is they want something for free. Um, where I think generally folks who, who want something for free are looking for kind of like a shortcut or they don't want to have skin in the game. 
And uh, I think oftentimes people having some skin in the game, whether that's like paying for tuition, um, buying a book, that sort of thing, uh, often is a nice carrot to help you learn uh, rather than just like having, having this shortcut of something being free. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, let's pivot just a little bit and say, um, you know, I know you've written a lot of books. Do you know how many you've written so far? Um, yeah, I I would say I have over a dozen published on Amazon, either under my name or some other names that I've experimented with other books on that Mm -hmm. platform. Um, but you know, as, as far as like technical books, I've back on my bookshelf there, I've got you know, three feet of, of different books that I've published with <laughs> their books or translations of those books. Mm-hmm. So, so, so the, there's quite a few books. I mean, one of the things that's hard to, you know, I, I guess I could give you a specific number, but it's like, you know, some of them are like, this was the first edition of this. This is the second oh, edition yes. of this. And, and so, um, yeah, where do I count those yeah. half books? It's sometimes a little bit hard. Yeah, I understand. I I've read I've read well, one book from the ground up, so I count that second edition as a second book, even though it has the same title same content. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I totally get it. Do you have one that you feel like you enjoyed writing it the most versus um, a different one? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I I think going on your like rewriting book, I, I think effective pandas was, uh, probably one that I felt like I put a lot of, um, blood, sweat and effort into. Um, and I think that sort of paid off in, in the content there. And, um, so, so yeah, I, short story on that. So, you know, prior to pandas release, I was actually working at a company, uh, doing like business intelligence. And I wrote an OLAP cube engine in Python to like query databases and materialize uh, information and aggregate information doing that. And when Pandas came out, I'm like, oh, this does a lot of what I'm doing. And uh, I was pretty excited about that. So I started using it at work and also, um, uh, you know, teaching and eventually wrote a book about that. And and after I'd written that book, I, I was approached to, to write the second edition of a pandas book by another publisher. And I'm like, okay, I, I actually read the original version of this book and I like it. So I'll, I'll do that. And I, I wrote the second edition of that book. Um, along the way, I had been doing a lot of teaching pandas, but also using it um, for consulting and for my own stuff. So I started to get some really strong opinions about best practices and, you know, foot guns that people were doing with pandas. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to rewrite. Actually, I, it wasn't a rewrite. It was like, I'm going to, to you know, just do an update of my pan, my original pandas book based on that. And I started that and I was like, uh, you know what, I'm, I'm actually just going to rewrite the book, right? Based, and and ended up uh, rewriting that, which turned out, out to be a, effective pandas. Um, and, and so that, you know, that, that process of writing the book, um, you know, I was like, oh, this will just take maybe a month or two to, to write, uh, to, to update the book, ended up being probably almost a year or more 
to uh, get the book into a place where, where I was happy with it. Yeah, that makes sense. Just out of curiosity, do you ever work on multiple books at the same time or do you try to focus on one at a time? Yeah. Um, yeah. So answer to your question, yes. Um, <laughs> I do work on multiple <laughs> books at a time. Um, generally, that's not the best practice, but sometimes I'm like, oh, I, I just need to start writing something here. So mm -hmm. yeah, I, I um, like, so Effective Pandas 2 just came out. Um uh, over a month ago. Um, but while I was waiting for like reviews of that and, and, uh, some help with that, I'm like, uh, I have people like clamoring for effective pullers. And so, um, mm -hmm. so basically, um, started that process, uh, in the meantime. So yeah, now mm -hmm. effective pullers is actually in review right now. And I'm, uh, I, I don't have another book uh, concretely, uh, in mind, but I've got some, some ideas, but yeah, some, oh. sometimes, sometimes they do get juggled in, in there, but I, I found that for me, um, if I can sort of just have one book that I'm working on at a time, I, I can be a little bit more productive that way. Yeah, I totally get that. I'm just thinking to myself, you know, sometimes I get stuck when I'm working on something and I'm like, maybe if I switched to a different, one of my other mini ideas, because I have a bunch of them, I'm like, that's sometimes just switching topics and then coming back. It's like, yeah. oh, now, now I'm fresh and ready to go again. Yeah. I, I certainly like giving <laughs> yourself a breather or, or breaks uh, can be useful. I think, you know, a lot of people who will like look at books are like, oh, I, you know, even I, I guess you could apply that like AI question to like books. It's like, you know, yeah you know, why do I need a book if I have AI or, or can't I just have AI write a book for me? And I, I think what a lot of people don't realize, and you could probably attest to this is like the amount of work that goes into writing a book. It's not mm -hmm. a lot of people think, Oh, I'll just write a book and it will take a day or two to write a book. Um, and, and that's not the case. There's a, a lot of work that goes into a book, whether it's self-published or one that you've worked with a publisher on. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you, you need to compare it more to a marathon than a sprint. And if you're not, if you're not really into doing the, the work for the marathon, then you probably shouldn't write the book. Yeah. It definitely takes a lot longer than you think it will. Mm -hmm. Yep. Of course, once you've written a couple of books, you kind of have the idea of how long it'll take to some degree, but. Yeah, I, I think that there is that idea of how long it will take. But I th I think, well, my experience that it might be different for other people is like uh, I, I either am overly optimistic or um, <laughs> keep forgetting about things that get in the way and slow things down. Yeah, I I don't know about you, but I've always taken the approach of um, I'm going to estimate about a week per chapter and then I'm going to say, let's say it has 13 chapters, so it'll be 13 weeks, and then I just add a, add a fudge factor of 50 to 100%, because mm -hmm. I know there's going to be sickness and vacation and stuff I'm not thinking of. I yeah. might even get stuck on a chapter. And that That's usually enough. Not always, but it's close. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that sounds good. And, and yeah, and my, and my, how my work is, is that sometimes it's like, I might not work on a book for a whole week or something because mm -hmm. of the training or something like that. Um, but yeah, sir, 
yeah, definitely like, yeah, there is a lot of work that goes into a book and, you know, again, could AI, AI certainly can help write a book. Um, but even, even with that, um, there's a lot of work that goes into a book that, um, I don't think AI, I haven't seen AIs that are able to like aid with, with a lot of the other work that, that goes into that. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't used it much for that. I've, I have some friends who like to use it to, um, basically kind of, kind of act as an editor, like check this chapter over. Can it, can it be made better mm-hmm. or just rewrite this chapter? And then they look at it and compare it to the original and decide what to keep stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. I, and, and one, one place I've thought is like, you know, I was looking at my book sales the other day and it was like, Oh my, you know, my, my top sales are in the U S and then after that it's the UK. And then it's, it's Germany is my third, mm-hmm. third most. And it's like, okay. Um, you know, as you know, someone who feeds their families selling books, or at least that's pays some of what my bills, right. Books, mm-hmm. would it be, you know, prudent of me to look into a translation of my books to German, right? And I, I don't speak German, and it's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, could I use AI to translate that or assist in translating that, right? And then, yeah, AI could probably. I don't, I, I, I don't speak German, but like AI does an okay job. I, I do speak some Spanish, and AI does an okay job with that. So mm-hmm. it's like, it, it might do that, right? So you know, could I leverage that for for a German? translation and it's like yeah you probably could um but then you would probably mm-hmm. want at least to have i don't i don't know if like there's grammarly for germany right but you'd probably want to have a native german speaker at least go over it to make sure yeah. that the translations make sense right and then mm-hmm. have you know a couple other people go over that and sort of proofread that as well so it's it's you know even though like ai might be able to do that it's like there's still a lot of work that you know if you want to have a quality product at the end um come out of that yeah i remember um so i'm kind of a comic book nerd and i remember reading this guy who's who wrote a lot of who wrote a lot of funny puns and <laughs> and uh, a little bit of slang in one of his comics and he did he, and you know, at the time he was like, it's really funny in English, but it didn't make any sense when they translated it to Spanish or German or whatever. They're like, what? That doesn't uh-huh. make sense at all in those other languages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't include a lot of puns or jokes. Maybe I should, but yeah, yeah, exactly. There, the, like translation is, is sort of a skill and, and like yeah, mm-hmm. AI might help with that. But even, even, you know, having said that, um, there, there's still a ton of work, even using AI or not. So, yeah. Yeah. There's lots of, lots of, uh, hidden pitfalls as you, as we've talked about throughout the show that we don't even think about. Mm-hmm. You don't learn it unless you actually go through, go ahead and yeah. put the hard work into it. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people, you know, we live in, in the society where it's like, Oh, I, I can sit down and I can watch Netflix or I can watch YouTube and YouTube is programmed to know, like, I mean, Google knows a ton of, Google knows probably more about me than anyone and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they can, pr- their feed can like generate YouTube content that's just like, Oh, just keep doing dopamine hits or whatever and keep Matt sort of sitting there. And, and, and you can sit in this world where you're just sort of like, I'm, I'm not productive or c- producing anything. I'm just like, uh, you know, 
consuming from yeah. the machine, right? And and so I think, um, you know, my advice would be be very careful, um, and and you want to look at like, you know, are you just being a consumer? Or are you actually actually being a producer as well? And and I, I think a lot of us are looking for the quick con- consumption where we, we should be trying to, I think, uh, be on, on more of the production side. Yeah. Yeah. No, if more people share the information, you know, I think it would benefit everyone. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we've reached the end of my questions. So I just want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. And for anyone who's interested, I'm going to put a bunch of links to Matt's um, books and websites uh, in the show notes so you can go check out all the cool things that he does. Awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah, no problem. And I hope everyone will tune in next time and uh, find out what else is going on in the Python world. Make sure to leave a review. This makes our day and fuels future episodes. Mike Driscoll, The Python Show. 